Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. DRC rebel leader Juvenal Musabimana has been killed and South Africa relaxes travel requirements for child tourists. In economics news, Africa Investment Forum enters its second day and in sports news, two Africans in the running for World Athlete of the Year award. But first up the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. South Africa's Deputy President David Mabuza is in trouble for refusing to condemn human rights violations against members of the LGBTQ plus community across Africa during a question and answer session in the National Council of Provinces on Thursday last week. KwaZulu-Natal DA Member of Parliament asked Mabuza how he would take a principal stand and condemn human rights abuses committed against members of the LGBTQ plus community, especially in Uganda. Steve Litsika is the founding director of Access Chapter 2. It's a shock. It's a double standard uh, that went through my mind about the role of South Africa in the region in observing the treaty we signed, which is the African Charter, but also undermining you know, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. We have a big constitution which is celebrated globally. And I think one of the most important things is how we promote and protect the rights as enshrined in the constitution, but also the constitution must be promoted as part of our foreign policy. A local registration that has been involved in efforts to stop the spread of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo has closed down after one of its journalists was murdered. Staff at Luemba Radio in the eastern town of Mombasa say they have received numerous threats and have stopped broadcasting for safety re- uh, reasons. Radio presenter Papi Mumbere Mahamba was killed in his home after hosting an Ebola awareness program earlier this month. Nearly 2,200 people have died from the virus since the outbreak began last year. Police in Uganda say two people have been killed by Rwandan security forces in an incident that may escalate the border tension between the two East African countries. Uganda police spokesperson Eli Mate says the victims had smuggled tobacco to Rwanda. Mate says Uganda's border security officials were working to repatriate the bodies from Rwanda. The political tension between the two countries escalated in February when Rwanda closed its borders and blocked all goods from Uganda. As a result of the closed border, communities near the border have resorted to smuggling. 
Experts have been meeting in South Africa's coastal city of Durban ahead of the ministry, African Ministerial Conference on the Environment at the end of the week. South Africa will take over the chairmanship of the body, which meets every two years. The talks were centered on climate change, the protection of biodiversity. The aim is to measure the progress African countries are making to meet their nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement to keep global warming below 2 degrees Celsius. Stanislas Noba chaired the meeting of experts on behalf of Gabon. Africa is not a big uh, polluter at the moment, but our continent is um, growing up, is going to be uh, more developed, and we have to make sure that today we uh, put our continent on the good rails to have a sustainable development. So it's also uh, including the way we are going to produce, where we are going to consume, uh, the way we are going to manage our biodiversity, our natural capital. Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam says protesters who've engaged in violence have become enemies of the people. She says the government would not yield to protesters' demands. Lam has been speaking following one of the most chaotic days in five months of protests in Hong Kong. The BBC's Stephen McDonough reports. There have been some clashes here as evidenced by all the debris on the ground. Tear gas has been fired here and there is a lot of tension in the city tonight after this activist was shot and of course this other terrible scene when a man who was seen to be presumably too pro-Beijing had some sort of accelerant poured on him and then a more hardcore activist has set that on fire and the shocking scenes of a man on fire just because of having a political argument has shocked a lot of people in this city. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Ona Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One. Hashtag Vision 2030. Democratic Republic of the Congo forces have killed a rebel leader and four of his bodyguards in a security operation in the east of the country. Troops killed Hutu rebel leader Musa Bimana Juvenal, also known as General Jean-Michel Africa, following an intense clash at Rutsuru in North Kivu province. Musambim Nama led a splinter group of the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda FDLR, a group founded by Hutu officials who fled Rwanda after orchestrating the 1994 genocide. Januel Bamweze has from Kinshasa. The Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda FDLR leader was killed on Saturday during a clash between the splinter of the FDLR group and the armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo, FARDC. Juvenile Musabimana, well known through his war nickname of Jean-Michel Africa, was killed alongside four of his bodyguards in the Biza village in the North Kivu province, where these Rwandan rebels have been operating since more than 20 years. 
Jean-Michel Africa's killing is another serious loss for the FDLR after the FARDC killed Sylvester Mudachumura, who was another famous leader of the armed group and was wanted by the International Criminal Court. And according to the DRC Army spokesperson who made the statement, the killing of Musabimana is a strong message and all armed groups should surrender. Guillaume Njike. There are operations underway in that area and so those still keeping arms illegally have to get this strong message. They have no place in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. People in the Democratic Republic of Congo and especially the North Kivu province where the FDLR operates have encouraged the National Army operation in that part of the country. An activist from the Fight for Change civil movement well known as Lucha living in the North Kivu town of Goma told Channel Africa the killing of that FDLR leader is a good news for people there. Jack Sizahera. That rebel was disturbed, that area, Binza, Sarambwe, Nyakakoma and uh, Ishasha. He was disturbed the fight for the people there. People is very happy and see the hope of peace in North Kivu. If the second commander has killed, it's like something make hope to peaceful in North Kivu. The FDLR violate uh, human rights around the Ruturu, around the Masisi, and in uh, some part of Rubero. When they are killing, our commander is going to make peace in the area. We hope we'll see peace come now in North Kivu. You know the FDLR has made uh, many atrocities in North Kivu, and when the FRDC neutralize a leader, FDLR cannot be active in the region. The operation is being conducted by this country's national army, the FRDC, and no foreign army has been deployed, according to this lucha activist, Jackson Zahera. We have not seen foreign army operation is uh, conducted with uh, only FRDC. The high commander for Sokolate, who was attacked them and killed them, is only for FRDC. It is a brigade for Sokola 2 was attacked them and killed Africa Jamichel. We encourage our army force and we ask to them to attack all army groups who destabilize our region for, of North Kivu. I know maybe sometimes uh, Monisco has not uh, accepted to support FRDC because uh, they are sending false Kabwe in North Kivu but now is not false Kabwe. I think Monisco is support FRDC on that operation for track uh, rebels, ADF Nalu and other group rebels. Meanwhile, the DRC army has said it has killed 25 rebel fighters since it launched an offensive against militia groups in that eastern part of this country at the end of last month. Seven government soldiers are also said to have been killed and indeed hand-to-hand combat is reported in areas northeast of Beni in the North Kivu province. The Congolese military launched the operation from Beni, an area targeted by the Ugandan rebel group, the Allied Democratic Forces, well known as ADF, which has killed hundreds of people. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. 
South Africa's ruling ANC National Youth Task Team's plans for the renewal of the organization ahead of its upcoming national conference next year has suffered a setback. This following a number of disruptive and violent clashes, including the killing of a member over the weekend. Two weeks ago, during another meeting in the Limpopo province, National Executive Committee members Figilim Balula and Malusi Gigaba were forced to flee after violent clashes broke out, resulting in two vehicles belonging to members being set Light. This has led to the task team postponing all its assemblies until further notice. Nomalizo Mandela reports. The task team has been holding meetings across the country ahead of the league's National Congress, which is expected to take place next year. Early this year, the ANC's NEC disbanded the Youth League leadership following complaints that it was ineffective. The party's national spokesperson, Bule Mabe, says what happened over the weekend was just hooliganism and gangsterism that has infiltrated the party's structures. We cannot tolerate hooliganism. We are not going to allow gangsters who are trigger happy to come and occupy our meetings and scare the lives of young people who are supposed to participate uh, in the sustenance of our own national democratic revolution. It is not going to happen. The assemblies are also part of the league's program to assess the state of the organization. In a scathing open letter published in the Daily Maverick, former ANC Youth League National Task Team member Reboni Dau painted a picture of complete chaos. Dau says branches of the league are dysfunctional and not program-driven, and factionalism and gatekeeping have become the order of the day. Mabi says the party is looking at a number of responsive programs which include political education. We need to make sure that the breed of young people that we are bringing in to be able to lead the charge in the advancement of the interest of uh, young people in this country are themselves disciplined, are themselves young people who are guided by conviction, understand the values of the ANC. Political analyst Ralph Mateja says this behavior is indicative of the state of decay the party is in. It is becoming a common practice within the NC. It is the state of engagement within the NC where fear seems to be uh, the order of the day, where members of the NC, you know, they go around among each other with bodyguards as if they don't share the same vision. That's just the level of trust that you have where you see members of the party going around among each other at party events and so forth, you know, showing the level of fear that they have and mistrust among each other. It's a state of the organization. It requires a very, very deep reflection about the type of a comrade or a cadre that the ANC is attracting today. Mateja says the country should not be looking at this matter as a party issue only, but that it is happening within an organization that is leading the nation. And, and unfortunately, the mother body, which is the ANC, it has not also been exemplary. Some of the branches meeting of the ANC, we know they descend into what... Uh, tend to be called a festival of chairs, where violence has become quite often when members cannot agree. And the sad part is that this is happening within a political party that is providing leadership within the country. And I think South Africans should just reflect as well and look into this thing. That's political analyst Ralph Mateja ending that report by Nomalizo Mandela in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite.
Channel Africa. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The tourism industry has welcomed the news that foreign miners traveling to South Africa are no longer required to produce unabridged birth certificates or consent letters when traveling with their parents. South Africa's Home Affairs Minister, Dr. Aaron Mutsualedi, signed the waiver on Friday, which comes into effect immediately. But South African children are still required to provide supporting documents in line with the requirements of the Children's Act. The same applies to unaccompanied foreign minors. Pumzile Mlangeni reports. After five years of attempting to convince government to abolish the controversial regulations, the tourism industry has finally won. The department argued that the strict laws were to prevent child trafficking. It now says it hopes this change will have a positive impact on tourism as the holiday season approaches. The Tourism Business Council of South Africa has welcomed the signing of the waiver. It says the tourism industry has suffered a huge blow as a result of this stringent requirement. Here's the council's CEO, Chipewa Chibengwa. There were many people that were either turned away from the airport. Uh, there were some numbers that you know we looked at. Some suggested about 13,000 people were turned away from the airport. And then there were also people that just never considered us. Because you know, if I'm traveling with a family, I want to come to South Africa, and there are all these rules. I'd rather go somewhere else, you know, where the aren't as stringent rules. We think that the numbers is quite larger than, you know, what I just quoted. Uh, simply because there are people who just wrote us off. They never even look at us. Shivenga says South Africa will now go back to its former glory of being a holiday destination of choice. He says it will also enable the tourism industry to flourish again. It took way too long. The numbers dipped in the process. But it comes as a relief now, you know, to say that, you know, now we're back in the map. Uh, and, you know, we certainly hope that, you know, other regulations that are hindering tourism, you know, like the issues around, you know, the national, you know, public transport regulator, and, you know, must be looked at to unlock the potential for tourists. We said that we want 21 million tourists by 2030. This will go a long way in making sure that we achieve those numbers. And also we get the value from the tourists that are coming to the country. Home Affairs Minister Dr. Arun Mozwaledi says the decision to abolish the regulations was reached after much outcry from the tourism industry. He says the regulations also resulted in many job losses. We hear from the Tourism Council and the tourism industry that uh, this requirement uh, brought down tourism. Uh, it affected negatively, we hear so. And in listening to them, that's why a debate ensued and we reached a condition that Perhaps we must revoke that decision and reverse it. It is because of listening to the tourism industry when they were complaining that indeed this requirement has brought tourism down in South Africa. It's not in the interest of the country for tourism to be down. For the simple reason that you know that tourism is one of the industries that easily create jobs for lesser amount of money than others. Tourism SA has also welcomed the decision following its recent roadshows to UK, Central Europe and North America, where they received feedback that South Africa was starting to lose ground on the family travel market due to the regulations. I am Pumzile Mlangini in Pretoria. It's 7.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Gender-based violence... Yet, will yet again be under the spotlight as the groundbreaking International Conference on Population and Development gets underway 
in the Kenyan capital Nairobi, where participants will be reflecting on the gains that have been made in addressing a range of issues around sexual and reproductive health in the last 25 years. The meeting brings together over 6,000 delegates from government, non-profit organizations and civil society, among others. South Africa has one of the world's highest gender-based violence rates in the world, with some experts saying it's comparable to countries that are at war. To reflect more on the scourge and the country's efforts in dealing with it, we are now joined on the line by Mandisa Kangile of Rise Up Against Gender-Based Violence, a participant at the Nairobi Summit dubbed ICPD25. Mandisa, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Now, ICPD25 is about taking stock of the gains that have been made and delivering on the promise that was made 25 years ago to improve SRHR. What does the current picture around GBV in South Africa speak to? Well, South Africa, from a policy perspective, is doing well, as we all know, but the issue with us, as usual, is implementation. So we do have a Domestic Violence Act. We do have people uh, that are supposed to be persecuted for acts of gender-based violence, but how many prosecutions do we actually see? How many rape cases that actually go into a police station actually end up in a successful prosecution. So there is some fundamental challenges with our criminal justice system that are basically denying access to justice. And also, in fact, the issue of re-victimization of survivors when they go through the system ensures that they actually don't report on most cases. So we're standing in a situation whereby right now, at a policy level, we look good. Um, we've implemented all the things that we said we're supposed to implement, but we're failing in terms of, in, of, of sorry, not implementing. We've, we've got all the policy work that is in place, but we failed to implement what we said we're going to implement. Now, currently, as a country, we're sitting with a gender-based violence scourge that has reached uh, crisis proportions. What arguments or calls to action will your organization be presenting at this global gathering underway? And just to ensure that, uh, you know, as you say, implementation, implementation, implementation is the key here. How do we get it right? Well, I mean, there's some really big promises that South Africa is making in terms of their commitment at this particular ICPD. Uh, For example, they said that they're going to be providing uh, adolescent girls uh, with sanitary pads, indigent and adolescent girls, which I'd really like to see. They said that they're going to be improving access to the reproductive health services for adolescent girls because we have such a high rate of teenage pregnancy and and contraction of uh, HIV AIDS amongst adolescent girls. They've reiterated their commitment to the 1.6 billion that they've allocated to gender-based violence. Um, they said they're going to strengthen coordination and they're going to fund sexual offences courts into civilian care centres better. And they've also said that they're going to be promoting the integration uh, of 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 of, um, of migration into urbanisation and development planning. I'm very excited to hear about that because it means we're actually going to start planning for migrant workers and we're going to start planning for. Uh, persons that are displaced. So we're going to start planning for people that live on the streets. We're going to start planning for people that aren't necessarily part of the general population in an urbanized area that don't actually get planning and end up either on the streets or not uh, allocated proper housing. 
So I'm excited about those type of commitments. In terms of gender-based violence, what we're trying to see is, again, the commitments are great. We're happy with what uh, South Africa has submitted. But we want to see if the actual change on the ground. So, and another thing that happens at these international events, and this I've seen with others, is that we get specific commitments and then they get watered down once they start engaging the rest of the continent. So we want to see South Africa stand firm on our commitments. We want to see South Africa take a proper stance in a position, a progressive one, and we want to see them be leaders in terms of the human rights space on the continent. Now let's speak about uh, positive gains that South Africa can speak about. What would you highlight? Uh, we seem to have lost Mandisa there, that connection. Uh, we will try and get her back on the line if that is possible. But we're speaking to Mandisa Kangile of Rise Up Against Gender-Based Violence. And uh, this is with regards to um, the participation of Rise Up Against Gender-Based Violence, um, which is a, Niro- a summit taking place in Nairobi, and it is dubbed ICPD25. Um, it is currently ongoing in uh, Kenya. Nairobi as we speak. Mandisa Kangile of Rise Up Against Gender-Based Violence. Africa, rise and shine. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Enjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. More than 52 million people in 18 countries across southern, eastern and central Africa are facing up to crisis levels of hunger as a result of weather extremes compounded by poverty and conflict. This is according to a new report by humanitarian organization Oxfam. The organization has reached more than 7 million people in 10 of the hardest hit countries with food and water support and long-term development projects to help people cope better with climate-related shocks. For more on the report, Channel Africa's Kumbele Mujalele spoke to Nelly Nyangwa, Oxfam's Southern Africa Regional Director. 
the situation is quite bad, actually. So you are talking about some of the countries which are already in conflict. So like in the past six months, uh, we have had a number of those countries already in conflict, and we have 6.6 million people displaced because of the conflict just in the first half of the year. And then in this particular part of the world, in this region, we have had Cyclone Idai and the Kenneth hitting Mozambique and the next countries, and we have had 2.6 million people are displaced. Now we are getting reports that we have some of the highest recorded temperatures in the Indian Ocean, and that tells you that there's likely to be more of these kinds of climate-related disasters. In some of our countries, in this part of the region, for example, Zimbabwe is the worst hit with 5.5 million people that are affected. We do have very stable countries like Zambia that have always exported food to other parts of the countries, uh, parts of the region. But now they are also had to feed with 2.3 million people without any food. When you talk about East Africa, you have Kenya that have been relatively stable, but they have retired, uh, which is badly impacted. And then you have Somalia that is already affected by conflicts. And you do have a whole lot of people in that area also affected. So the situation is quite bad. Here in Malawi, I just got a report on radio three days ago that says three kids were hospitalized because they had eaten poisonous fruits. So they had slept the previous night without food, and in the morning on their way to school, they decided to pick on fruits that got them seriously ill and they were hospitalized. So what we are likely to see is that we will see more of these kinds of coping mechanisms that are disastrous and have a negative impact on people and particularly women and the younger children. Now, the ongoing conflict in some countries uh, must be making the situation even worse, isn't it? What kind of support is Oxfam providing to those who have been affected the most? And would you say there has been progress globally in terms of funds uh, that have been raised to address loss and damage from uh, climate change? Um, A good question. So, in most of the countries where we are operating ourselves. Uh, In this region, we are in four countries, but in East Africa, we are in more countries. So in 10 countries where we are operating, we are already responding. And in terms of the conflict, we have been there as permanent programs uh, where we are providing support uh, to displaced people. And our major programs have been around providing food and have been around providing water and sanitation facilities. So we are set up to do this even with this particular crisis. And what we need is about $65 million that we have worked out to be able just to reach 10% of the people. Okay, so if Oxfam reaches 10% of the people, that tells you that we need a lot more for other agencies and governments to be able to reach the other 90% of people. Now, if you ask me whether we have made any progress, I think the disappointing news is that we have not made much progress at the global level. I think it's known that Africa is only contributing 5% of the emissions globally, but we do get a huge impact of, of the climate change disasters in Africa. We are aware that ministers are meeting this week in Durban, which is a real great opportunity for the African Ministerial Conference on the Environment. It is a great opportunity. And I think the governments in this part of the world need to be pushing quite hard for the rich countries to reduce their emissions. And this is in line with the Paris Agreement. So there has to be more pressure for them to reduce the emissions. Secondly, there was a commitment made that they'll be raising a hundred 
billion dollars per year by 2020 to be able to finance mitigation and adaptation. But all this does not seem to be making good progress. And I think it's an opportunity for us to be pushing quite hard so that we are able to see progress at the global commitments. Within the region, within Africa, we need to be making greater efforts to reduce the gap that is there between the rich and the poor. What is happening at the moment is that this particular crisis is actually hitting the poor more because they are not able to protect themselves. Their positioning is already vulnerable. So we need to be investing more in services that reduce that gap. That's very important. That's Nelly Nyanga, Southern Africa Regional Director at Oxfam, speaking to Kumbele Mujelele. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline, South Africa's Deputy President David Mabuza is in trouble for refusing to condemn human rights violations against members of the LGBTQ plus community across Africa during a question and answer session in the National Council of Provinces on Thursday. A local radio station that has been involved in efforts to stop the spread of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo has closed down after one of its journalists was murdered. And women across Africa are demanding better care from government-run hospitals in an effort to cut the number of lives lost during childbirth. Those are the stories making headlines. New low-denomination banknotes touted by the government of Zimbabwe as the solution to the acute cash shortage crippling the country's economy failed to arrive on Monday, leaving banks confused and consumers frustrated. The lack of cash, along with shortages of staple goods exacerbated by long drought, has sent inflation to its highest since 2008, estimated at 380% year-on-year. Simon Muchemo has more from Harare. Zimbabweans were very anxious on Monday, waiting for banks to start distributing new banknotes as per the promise by the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe. The black market stopped changing U.S. dollar to bond for the whole day as banks were expected to inject new notes. Speculation was rife and businesses were not so sure if trading in the old bond notes was risky or not. However, this speculation was made worse by the Reserve Bank's failure to explain why the promised new banknotes were not in the banks by the end of the day on Monday. Zimbabweans have had serious case challenges for the past half a decade, and as it stands, citizens have lost hope with unscrupulous businesses making a killing. Noting the high cost of living that has resulted from the cash shortages the RBZ announced last week, new banknotes will be in circulation from Monday. While some were genuinely interested in receiving the banknotes and end the cash drought, others wanted to see if this was going to help exchange rates to go down. Webster Rusero, Bank Association of Zimbabwe, could neither confirm nor deny there was no distribution of new notes on Monday. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't managed to do a round. Uh, why don't you phone uh, the Reserve Bank and just establish the helicopter view on the distribution that they have done? Ordinary citizens had this to say regarding the unavailability of new notes on Monday. I think when the government promises to bring or to increase cash circulation in the economy, 
And then uh, the day they announce that they will increase cash, there is no cash. It only adds up to mistrust. People end up not trusting them. People already don't trust them. But now, uh, when they have a chance to, to, to resume their the trust, they fail again. So people will end up not even believing anything from them. Uh, the, the, the exchange rate will continue surging because uh, even if they put more uh, bond notes in, in circulation, it won't affect the uh, USD transfer rate because um, people don't want to... Uh, don't don't want Zimbabwean money. They want uh, USD money. They want USD uh, currency. So money changers will continue uh, pegging their rates at, at a very high premium, uh, despite an injection of more bond notes. About the new currency, they are circulating the papers with features of the new currency, but we can see the difference between the new five-dollar note and the old five-dollar note. So I think they're just playing some emotional games with the Zimbabweans because they know they can't endure now. They are tired of this type of economy. So they're just trying to cool them down. Meanwhile, a Harare-based economic analyst, Clemens Mutembo, had this to say over this development. People have been saying that we are now returning to the Zim dollar era because the introduction of new notes and coins with the generality of the people, they do not really know uh, what this means from a money supply standpoint. And so with the Zimbabwean economy, I can say that you, you just never know what sort of effect this is going to have. Uh, chances are very high that the, it's going to really impact on the exchange rate, which may further get prices to spiral. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Since fighting began in 2011, millions of Syrians have been displaced in the civil war. Globally, governments have pledged to resettle thousands in response. Since 2015, 15,000 now reside in the UK. But the British public has also been helping to rehome refugee families in many towns across the country of Kerejjan. Welsh is the main language. It is rural, coastal Wales, where farms meet the sea, a far cry from war-torn Syria. And yet families who have resettled here have embraced the language and the local community who welcome them in. Our Wales correspondent, Thomas Morgan, went to the town of Cardigan and the local school to meet the Alchik family. She was just six years old when Sarah was thrown into education for the first time in her life, and it was through the medium of Welsh at a school Abertavi in Cardigan. Where partner work with friend Eva would have been impossible when she first arrived. Was it hard not 
knowing English or Welsh when you first came? Yeah, I know Welsh a lot because some of them, my friends speak with me in Welsh and I tell them, uh, okay, if they tell me to want to come play with me, I tell them, okay, yeah, but uh, like all of my friends speak English, sometimes I understand and then sometimes not. Uh, It's been astonishing how quickly Sarah and her brother Shadi have picked up both Welsh and English, according to deputy head teacher Bethan Cadwallader Williams. Shadi and Sarah are both very social children. Um, they love talking. They love playing with other children, like like any other children. Um, I don't think the language barrier was as much of an issue for the children as perhaps it would have been for adults. In the midst of the Syrian refugee crisis, the UK government introduced the Vulnerable Persons Resettlement Scheme for Syrians in 2014, aiming to take in 20,000 people. Local communities, however, wanted to do more, and shortly later, spearheaded by Group Citizens UK, they pushed the government to allow communities to sponsor Syrian refugee families themselves. The first family arrived in Britain through what has now become known as community sponsorship in 2016. And the following year, the Alchik family arrived in deepest rural Wales. Well, when you look at the paperwork, it is daunting. Vicky Mola is the founder of charity Chrysartavi, loosely translated as Welcome to Cardigan. Vicky's hard work was behind the Alchik's life-changing move to Wales. First, you have to raise 9,000 per family. Second, you have to form a charity and put the money in that charity. Then you have to jump through all sorts of bureaucratic hoops. You have to form policies for everything. And I assume these are things that you maybe haven't got any prior knowledge or any expertise in? I've never formed a charity before and most of us have come together as a team. We've never worked before together. Vicky and her team raised the money on the street selling cups of coffee, for example, and was pleasantly surprised with the local community's generosity. When I, my, my children is very happy and I'm yeah, very happy. Yeah. Father Mohanad Alchik now studies carpentry at the local college, whilst Mother Nahida Khalil looks after their youngest. Their new-built home was bought and purposely rented to the Alchiks by a West Walian local. In here I um, feel safe. Mm. I like the people, the people very friendly. Wales seems to be leading the way when it comes to community sponsorship in Britain, when in eight of all resettled in the UK are now in Wales. This nation of just over three million people has proven that resettlement can work in a very rural setting, just like Cardigan. I hope to live uh, very good in UK. Canadian research suggests that families resettled via community sponsorship progress better than through government methods. Son Shadi is already being tracked by Swansea City Football Club. And as the TV pupils practice for their upcoming assembly, Sarah has also begun planning her future. Although there will always be Syrian, Cardigan is now the Elchik's home. That report by the BBC's Thomas Morgan in the Welsh town of Cardigan. In May this year, Pakistan was shaken by the biggest HIV outbreak reported in recent history. Within eight days, about a thousand people in the Sindh province in the southeast of the country 
were declared HIV positive. Nearly 900 of them were children. The BBC's Shumaila Jeffrey travelled to the region to find out how the affected families are coping and if anything has changed since the outbreak. Dr. Muzaffar Ghangro is examining a child who is sitting in his father's lap. After checking his eyes and throat, he asks the boy to lift his shirt. He then cleans his hand with sanitizer, puts a stethoscope on the boy's bare chest and asks him to breathe slowly. Outside his clinic near the small town of Rattodero in the southern Sindh province of Pakistan, around a dozen more patients are waiting for their turn. They all are children, some of them only a few weeks old. Dr. Ghangro used to be one of the most famous pediatricians in the area and the cheapest option. Until Ratodero became the epicentre of an HIV outbreak that overwhelmingly affected children. Health officials were under a lot of pressure. To cover up their incompetency, they needed a scapegoat and they made me one. And it was also jealousy. My practice was popular, so some doctors and journalists made this up. Dr. Ghangro was accused of spreading HIV among children by reusing syringes. He was arrested and charged with negligence. But he claims he's innocent. I've been practicing medicine for the past 10 years and not a single person ever has complained that I was reusing syringes. I've done nothing wrong. It all started in May this year, when another local doctor got suspicious about symptoms in children who were being brought to his clinic. He recommended they get tested for HIV. And this testing brought to light one of the biggest HIV outbreaks in the country. Almost 1,100 people in this small area were found to be HIV positive. Nearly 900 of them, children. That report by the BBC's Shamaila Jaffrey in Pakistani province of Sindh. It's 7.45 and our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoko. Good morning. A president of the African Development Bank, Akinwumi Adesina, says of 59 possible business transactions will come under the spotlight at the second African Investment Forum underway in Johannesburg, South Africa. He says that the forum is targeting 67 billion US dollars in new deals. These are project proposals that are at an advanced stage but are yet to be accepted by institutional lenders for financing. The Africa Investment Forum has attracted more than 2,000 participants from 109 countries. Adesina explains. The total value of transactions that we are going to be having discussed in these boardrooms is 67 billion US dollars. Remember last year, going into the boardrooms, we have 43 billion dollars being discussed. This year, we have 67 billion dollars being discussed in the boardrooms across 59 transactions. Meanwhile, efforts are being made by South Africa to attract investors in four of its main projects. The projects seeking to attract investment include 
the Ekuruleni and Tswane Waste to Energy Initiatives, Africa International Food Market, EcoCity and Affordable Housing Fund. South Africa has also listed 10 other smaller projects separately at the forum. National Treasuries of Vuyelwa Vumendlin. There are a number of um, investment projects that South Africa has identified to be launched here at the, um, the Africa Investment Forum. Uh, four of them will be presented in the boardroom sessions and then the rest will be on the, um, on the investment portal. For a project to be in the boardroom, uh, it needs to have passed through certain tests until such time that it gets to bankability stage. Once it gets to bankability stage, the bank then, which is the African Investment Forum, the AFDB in this case, they then market it to investors prior to the event. Zimbabwe has suspended imports of livestock and meat from South Africa for the second time this year after an outbreak of foot and mouth in the north of its neighboring country. The Agriculture Ministry says that the move is a precautionary measure designed to prevent the spread of the infection into Zimbabwe. In January, Zimbabwe joined Botswana and Eswatini in suspending meat imports from South Africa following the outbreak of the highly contagious foot and mouth disease. Foot and mouth does not affect humans but possess a threat to cattle, goats and sheep. The government of Togo and Nigeria's Dangoti Industries have signed two partnership agreements for phosphate fertilizers and cement production. The first agreement concerns a two billion US dollar project to process Togolese phosphate into phosphate fertilizers and the next a sixty million dollar cement plant project in Togo. Togo's president Forogasingbe presided over the signing ceremony by mining and energy minister Tederiwe Abli. Abidamon and Dangoti Group's CEO, Aliko Dangoti. Moody's Ratings Agency has downgraded the outlook on Britain debt to negative from stable, saying Brexit had been a catalyst for an erosion in the country's institutional strength. The Ratings Agency says it would be optimistic to assume that the previously cohesive, predictable approach to legislation and policymaking in the UK will once rather will return once brexit is no longer a conscientious issue however that's ad- achieved moody's affirmed its a2 rating on britain's sovereign debt the us dollar is trading at 360.57 nigerian nara 1075 botswana pula 101.50 kenyan shilling and 1367 zambian guacha in BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 4.15 a Brazilian roll, 63.85 Russian ruble, 71.23 Indian rupee, 7 Chinese yuan, and 14.88 to the South African rand, 77 pence British pound, 90 cents euro, gold $1,455, platinum $878 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $62.18 a barrel. Tabi Sorohoko, Channel Africa, Rise and Shine. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
In this hour in our sports update, we begin with athletics. Iluid Kipchoge is among five finalists for the Male World Athlete of the Year Award. The 35-year-old Kenyan became the first athlete to run a marathon in under two hours in the Ineos 1.59 Challenge in Vienna, Austria in October. Kipchoge also said the London Marathon caused a record of two hours, two minutes and 37 seconds earlier this year. Americans. Sam Kendricks and Noah Lyons, Uganda's Joshua Chaptegay and Norwegian Hadler, Kastin Welcome are also up for the award. As they left a UEFA's coaches meeting last night, AS Roma coach Paulo Fonseca and Olympic Lyonnais coach Rudy Kajia said the video assistant referee, the VAR, was a hot topic of conversation with Garcia saying use of the technology needs to be improved. The coaches meeting at the UEFA's headquarters in Nyon in Switzerland comes after another controversial weekend of VAR in the English Premier League, in which the technology led to a Sheffield United goal being disallowed for an offside against Tottenham Hotspur and Manchester City being denied a penalty for handball against Liverpool. UEFA Competitions Director Giorgio Machetti said the use of VAR is still a work in progress. Let's not forget that uh, VAR is, uh, is very young. Uh, it probably it's, uh, it's a revolution in the game. It probably uh, necessitates quite uh, quite some time to uh, uh, to be uh, fully understood and uh, to uh, and by, by everyone uh, to have uh, what uh, we all need and want. Of course, it's uniformity. Uh, VAR is a <clears throat> great help to the game, but it must not change the game. On to rugby news. Irate residents of Port Elizabeth, South Africa's Eastern Cape Province in the northern area, padlocked the Eastern Province Rugby Union offices, saying General Manager Tando Manana needed to explain why the Springboks tour parade failed to drive through the area. ANC MPL, that's a member of uh, the legislature, Christian Martin said he bought a padlock and locked the gate. Martin said he had seen insulting memes and heard voice notes from people joking about why the 2019 Rugby World Cup, the RWC champions, did not follow the initial route scheduled as well as the subsequent consequences. He said Manana had arrived at the offices and they would be having a meeting, which in turn was confirmed by Manana. And finally, with the tennis news, world number one Rafael Nadal made a disappointing start at the ATP finals as he suffered a first career loss to Germany's reigning champion Alexander Zverev, going down 6-2, 6-4 yesterday. The Spaniards seeking a first title at the event and hoping to secure the year-end number one ranking for the fifth time showed no sign of the abdominal injury sustained in Paris this month, but was comprehensively outplayed. Zverev broke serve in the fifth game and again two Games later, one of them blazed the wild forehand wide. Yeah, it's obviously great. I mean, everybody probably knows how much I was struggling the whole season, and uh, this means so much. Playing here again after winning my biggest title so far in my career here last year, uh, this means everything to me. And, um, you know, I was looking forward to this match, and, um, you know, thanks a lot for all the support, everybody who came out. It was... This is why, this is why um, the atmosphere is the reason why everybody's trying to you know, the goal of the beginning of the season is to make London because playing here, playing in front of you all guys, playing in the O2 is something, you know, that we don't have during the year and um, this is so special and uh, thank you very much. Well, number seven, Zarev has now beaten Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic and Nadal in conservative matches at the 
O2 Arena, where last year he claimed the biggest title of his career. Nadal takes on Daniil Medvedev in his second round robin match tomorrow in a repeat of this year's US Open final in which he took his Grand Slam hall to 19. Zarev faces Stefano Tsitsipas next. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, DRC rebel leader Juvenal Musambimana has been killed and South Africa relaxes travel requirements for child tourists. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzala Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour, for the news, there's Lucky Dube with a song titled Respect. Mm-hmm.